in Acts chapter 17. Okay, now, I don't know if anyone remembers Family Fortunes, do you? You remember the game Family Fortunes? Maybe that's old. It's a game show you have to guess the most popular answers to questions. And this question is, why do Christians not evangelize? Why do we not share the gospel as much as we should? So what do you think the most common reasons would be? You know, you, sort of, you do a survey or whatever, and you get the most common answers. Fear. Fear, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're afraid. That's my number one as well. We're afraid of offending people, right? Because our postmodern culture insists that everybody should be allowed to believe whatever they like about God or about anything, and no one contradict them. We're also afraid of People will consider, what will people think of us if we do evangelize? We're afraid of being mocked as stupid or, you know, considered a narrow-minded, hating bigot or whatever these days, right? So that's, that's my most common answer is, yeah, a fear in two different ways. What else do you think? Yeah, yeah, embarrassment. That comes in, yeah, if people think we're stupid, all the rest. I, I think another common thing maybe is that people feel they don't know the Bible well enough. You know, it's all right for Paul. He's got all his background. I don't know what to say to people nowadays, right? So people don't know what we're meant to be sharing. And then number two is we don't know other people's beliefs as well. Because nowadays in Belfast, you could meet Hindus, Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, atheists, agnostics, nominal Christians, Buddhists, people who are spiritual in all kinds of ways. And what do you... We don't even know what that means, right? What they believe. So how are we supposed to <laughs> have a conversation? So this is my, my guess, right? At some of the reasons that we don't really share the gospel. Now in Acts chapter 17, we're going to see Paul evangelize, share the gospel, in a really intimidating city of Athens in Greece. And they don't know the Old Testament. They have no concept of a Messiah. On top of that, the Greeks were actually, you know, famous, world famous for their wisdom. And in the crowd, there's all these philosophers called Epicureans and Stoics. And it's very intimidating, right? And the Epicureans, they were the materialists of the day. Like many today, they thought all we are is material, is matter, is atoms. And they didn't believe in the survival of the soul or any kind of afterlife. They believed that this universe came about from a kind of big bang. And atoms began colliding with each other, formed into gases, planets, stars. And then kind of the survival of the fittest did the rest and produced life and us and everything else. That sounds very familiar. This is 2,000 years ago. Sounds just like modern day atheists, Epicureans. And the Stoics, they, weren't, they were pantheists. They, they kind of believed that there was a force, that God was like a force that was in everything and in everything, just permeated the whole universe. Uh, it was a force of reason. Because they couldn't believe, like the Epicureans, that we could be made by, by, uh, you know, by, by just, we could be just material. There has to be something behind us because we can reason. So they said, there must be a force of rationality, of reason behind us, behind this whole universe. And they tried, the Stoics, they tried their best to live in sync with reason, right? Just to live their life at one with the universe, in a sense. And, and they remind me a lot of modern-day spiritual people and Buddhists who try to become one with this universe, you know, get into sync with nature and with everything, right? But they had no concept of a personal God. 
And as well as that, there were loads of idols everywhere, right? So the majority of the city were not philosophers. They were just the normal Greek people. And they worshipped the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes and Athena. And they tried their best to kind of keep them sweet with rituals and sacrifices. And they're just like Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and nominal Christians. Just keeping the traditions and hoping for the best, right? Don't think about it too much. Now, Paul wasn't meant to be evangelizing. He was meant to be waiting for his team to arrive from Berea. But whenever it says he saw the extent of their idolatry, he started to speak out. Couldn't help it. So let's read together Acts chapter 17. We'll start in at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, that was like the big theater, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, uh, what, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul provoked such a curiosity that they actually invited him to address them in the highest court of the city, the Areopagus. This is an amazing opportunity he has here. What is he going to say? It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So the locals actually arranged for Paul to explain what he was babbling on about. 
because there was a lot of confusion initially, right? They thought that Paul was introducing two new gods, one called Jesus and another one called the resurrection, right? They really didn't understand him. So they, they, they thought, we have plenty of gods here. We don't need two more, especially foreign gods. So, but they sort of concluded that he was at least worth an afternoon's attention, entertainment. So they arranged for him to address the Areopagus, the most important court in the whole of Athens. And they were about to get a lot more than they bargained for. And Paul starts off rather tongue-in-cheek. He, he has a subtle rebuke to the sheer amount of gods that they had around the place. The word religious here, he says, I perceive that you're very religious. It could mean superstitious. Kind of has a dual meaning. And they had so many idols. Paul says, I, I don't want to introduce any more right, to you guys. You've got enough already. More than enough. And Paul observes with that more than a hint of sarcasm that they even had an altar to the unknown God in case they missed one. Because, you know, you can't be too careful. The gods are very offend, easily offended. And if you don't worship one, well, he might get upset and, I don't know, destroy your city or something, right? Paul is saying this is ridiculous, guys. And then he says, he boldly declares, see what you worship is unknown. I'm about to tell you about that God. The one true God. And he actually, this pricks up a few years. And then he describes him as the God who made everything. Now, that certainly got their attention. The world and everything in it. And then he starts to apply just a few simple conclusions about the God who made everything. Now remember these Greeks are famous for their intellect, right? And these are, this is not rocket science. He says, number one, you can't put him in a temple, right? If he made everything, you can't put him in a temple. Number one, it's pretty obvious. Trying to contain the Almighty in a building is ridiculous, right? And nor does he need anything. As, you know, you're giving him gifts as a means of winning his favor. By definition, he gives us everything. If he made us, so we can't possibly have any needs. That's philosophy 101. God is, is the origin, the source of everything, and he has no needs. And yet, even today, there are so many temples and shrines in this world where offerings of food sit rotting outside to these idols who never seem to be hungry. It's ridiculous. And, and then he, he goes, point number two, uh, or three, he, he's not local to you. You're thinking I'm bringing foreign gods. There's no such thing as foreign gods or local gods or Greek gods or anything else. There's one God and he must be, he made all mankind. That's another ridiculous concept, guys. By definition, God must be transcendent. He, he must be above his own creation, including all mankind, all of us. These are very basic conclusions. And they mean that most of the religion that goes on in this world to this day is dumb. So many people are still trying to control their own culture's gods... Even the God of the Bible in our culture through rituals and religion. And Paul says, if you just stop and think for half a minute, you would realize how ridiculous that is. Now, now the philosophers, you see these Epicureans and Stoics, they're having a great time. They, they, they think this is fantastic because they, they would have enjoyed this so far because they completely agreed that all the Greek God nonsense going around them was ridiculous. 
Just like materialistic scientists today disdain religious belief as quaint at best and dangerous at worst. But Paul's next words come straight for them. And it isn't exactly rocket science. Paul next points out that this God who made the nations and all the peoples on the earth, he has actually arranged everyone's habitation, everyone's everyone's personal life almost, exactly where every person on this earth is to live. He's arranged the nations so that people could easily find him and know him. Now these, like many scientists, these men taught that it was impossible to know anything outside the material universe. But Paul says it isn't. Paul says the God who made us isn't far from any one of us. He's right there, right? He is actually very easy to find and to know in a personal way. He has deliberately designed our life for that very purpose. And it's easy to, th- to realize why that is. Because we, the most significant thing about humans is relationships, right? If, if fish were made to live in water, humans were made to live in relationships. So the God who made us is a God of relationships. And he has designed life so that we could have a relationship with him. It's, it's not difficult to realize that that is what God is at here in making us. This concept of God was way too up close and personal for these learned philosophers. You know, they enjoyed debating about the hypothetical origin of mankind, but they ruled out any possibility of encountering our actual creator as a person. And Paul says that's impossible. If we can know each other as people, we can know our creator as a person. And Paul makes the point that even your own writers and poets recognize that God must be, must be so much more than just a force. He must be up close and personal. Because one of their poets says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is the source and upholder of our everyday life. And another called Aratus, who was actually a Stoic, a philosopher, says, for we are indeed his offspring. This is a bold move, wasn't it, of Paul? He's actually quoting their own, their own philosophers against them. And he says, Paul is making the very simple point that the one who made us must be superior to us. He must be more than an impersonal force like the Stoics thought because we are more than that. Our creator can't be less than us by definition. If we are people, he has to be a super person, right? If that makes sense. If we can have relationships, then he can have so many more relationships with all of us. Now you think of all the scientists today who get all this air time on TV, like David Attenborough and Brian Cox and Richard Dawkins. And they are just like the Epicureans and Stoics here. They present the Big Bang and evolution as the origin of humans when it can't be. It's dumb. As if that's the only source of our life. If that were true, we would, if we were just mere material, mere atoms, there would be no such thing as relationships or love or justice or morality or beauty or rationality or even science. We wouldn't even be able to speculate about our origins unless someone with a greater rationality than us gave us brains. So these modern scientists haven't moved on in 2,000 years. They're just like these ancient Greek philosophers. And perhaps, like Paul, we should actually quote their own to them. That might be a good idea. 
Here is Paul Davies. He's not a Christian. He's a, he's a mathematical physicist. And he says, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate, an accident of history, an incidental blip in the great cosmic drama. Our involvement is too intimate. The physical species of Homo may count for nothing, but the existence of mind in some organism on some planet in the universe is surely a fact of fundamental significance. Through conscious beings, the universe has generated self-awareness. That can be no trivial detail. No minor product of mindless, purposeless forces. We are truly meant to be here. See what he's saying? Here's another one. He's called Professor Frederick Hoyle. He's a retired professor of astronomy at Cambridge. Again, he's not a Christian. He is speaking about the possibility of life developing here on earth by evolution alone. He says this, right? That the possibility of life developing just by chance, he says. A simple calculation then shows that the chance of obtaining the necessary total of 2,000 enzymes by randomly assembling amino acid chains is exceedingly minute. The random chance is not a million to one against, or a billion to one, or even a trillion to one against, but p to one against, with p minimally an enormous super astronomical number equal to 10 to the power of 40,000. Such a number exceeds the total number of fundamental particles throughout the observed universe by very, very many orders of magnitude. So great are the odds against life being produced in a purely mechanistic way that the difficulties for an earthbound mechanistic biology are, in our view, intrinsically insuperable. You say that life happened by chance, you might as well talk of a hurricane blowing through a scrapyard producing a Boeing 747. So, that, they're not Christians. So far, Paul has proved that idolatry is ridiculous. If there is a God at all, he certainly can't be contained in a temple or controlled through religion or represented by images as we are his offspring. He, may, he must be a God we can relate to. A God of rationality and justice, love and beauty because we, he made us and we have all of that. There are very basic conclusions. This is a, this is a course in philosophy. right? And it's really simple. And to this day, there is so much ridiculous religion and spurious science still in our world. Now, why is that? If this is not difficult. And Paul next puts his finger on the real reason for our ignorance. He says, we don't want to repent. Our ignorance is culpable. We humans know that if there is a personal God whom we can't control in little temples then we need to repent of our independence. And repent means to yield, to give God his place as our creator. Our ignorance of God is a willful, deliberate ignorance, a suppression of obvious truth in order to live as we like. People are being deliberately stupid as we don't want to follow where all the clues are leading. And Paul calls on these Athenians to repent. And he adds some urgency. Did you notice that? He says, God has overlooked some of this willful ignorance in the past. But now he commands everyone, everywhere. Repentance from all men everywhere. So why has this suddenly become more urgent? 
And Paul goes on to say, because this one true God, the creator of all mankind, has given the world another massive piece of evidence. He has raised a man from the dead. Right? One human raised beyond death has massive implications for all humanity. And the philosophers of Athens, they actually thought this idea was so ridiculous, they immediately mocked it. Isn't that it's not a strange way that intellectuals can hide. But the historical fact that a man had risen from the dead was starting to make its way around the Roman Empire and it had just reached Athens and it wasn't going anywhere. It was going to split history in two. A man called Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. And again, this is really rather simple. You know, how, how do I know that we are not just material, that death doesn't end everything for us? Because a man has risen from the dead, right? That's, that's the absolutely, uh, death can't be the end. Why do I trust what Jesus says about every other person that's ever lived on this planet? Above Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Charles T. Russell or anybody else because he is the only man that the creator has officially approved. He is the one who will judge the world. <laughs> There's only one man that, that the creator has risen from the dead to say, this man is the only one I approve of. Lots of men and women, scientists, philosophers, religious leaders, they've claimed lots of things about God, about life, about humans, about the universe. But God has only ever vindicated one man's claims. And that man is Jesus of Nazareth. Up until the resurrection of Jesus, we could maybe you know, claim some degree of uncertainty as to who we were, where we came from, what God was like. But now there's no excuse. <laughs> you know, if you don't listen to Jesus Christ, you're just dumb. And people today are obsessed, aren't they, with whether we agree with them or not. You know, people have, still have all kinds of opinions. And they ask us, do you agree with the way we live? Do you agree with this and that? And if we are, disagree with anyone, it's, it's, it harms them or something. You know, that's, that, that's the concept nowadays. We just have to let everybody have their opinion. But it's not about everyone's opinions. I tell them, that all depends on whether your opinion agrees with Jesus Christ. Because he rose from the dead and you didn't. And if you're with him, well then you're right. And if you disagree with him, then you're wrong. The Christianity is really that simple. So if we go back just for a minute about to our reasons for not evangelizing. See the last two. We don't know enough of the Bible. We don't know enough about what other people believe. Paul would not agree with these last two at all. Because we, we think we need to know so much about Bible and science and other religions. But here Paul doesn't even mention or quote from the Bible once. He only quotes from their poets. And that helps, but it isn't necessary. Paul shows that all you need to know. If you want to evangelize, all you need to know is two very basic facts. I think you know them already. Number one is you're a person. That's it. You're not a force. You're not a machine. You're a person with an ability to love, relate to others, a sense of justice and morality, beauty and reason. And none of this would be possible unless you were made by a God with all of that and more. It isn't possible for irrational forces to produce rationality. It isn't possible for impersonal forces to create persons. This number, you know that already. You're a person. Number two, a human has risen from the dead. 
The God who made humans has intervened in history to show his approval of one human. And only one. And that simple fact confirms that Jesus Christ is the most important person to ever live. And if we have any sense in our heads, we will listen to him above everybody else. That's it. That's all we need to know. <laughs> I, I went to hear this Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig. You might know him in, in Belfast City Centre a few years ago. And he spent the entire evening giving proof after proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, there was a Q&A time and a student confronted him and said he was very disappointed that there wasn't more stuff about science and creation. And William just said, I focused on the resurrection because if it is true and all the evidence confirms that it is, then you have to be a Christian and we'll deal with everything else after. That's the other two reasons that can hold us back, isn't it? Just like we said, it's fear. There is a pain barrier. There is no easy way to tell people that their religion or their scientific beliefs are ridiculous without offending them or, or being, you know, risk being hated for it. And this is obviously not appropriate. In many occasions, you know, you know, it isn't appropriate. But here Paul has been invited to address them in a lecture like they asked for it, right? <laughs> it was an amazing opportunity, but one of us that most of us you know, wouldn't even want. But we should want this. We should want opportunities to point these things out. And if we are given an opportunity like Paul does, what will give us the courage to actually take it? Well, there's two things. Number one is love for people. Because God is going to hold people accountable for deliberately choosing to believe wrong things in order to avoid him. And if we have any love for people, we'll warn them to repent. We'll call on them to repent. It's like having a friend with a serious illness who refuses to believe they're ill in order to avoid the doctor. Because they don't like doctors. But love will not leave them in blissful ignorance. Love will fight for them to see the truth before it's too late. But there is, that's number one thing. We need to have love for people if we're going to go through that pain barrier. But there's another thing. Did you notice why Paul began to speak out? What drove Paul to speak out in the first place? It says when he saw the city was full of idols. He was distressed. He was provoked. He was greatly distressed. He had to speak out. And this is the real thing that will force us through that barrier. It, love for people will only bring us so far. The real thing that did it for Paul and will do it for us is zeal for Christ. When other things, when we see idols and even human reason are being honored in the place of Jesus Christ, we will speak out. That's what John Stott says in his commentary on this passage. He says, How then, in the face of growing opposition to it, can Christians justify the continuance of world evangelization? The commonest answer is to point to the Great Commission. And indeed, obedience to it provides a strong stimulus. Compassion is higher than obedience. However, namely love for people who do not know Jesus Christ and who on that account are alienated, disorientated, and indeed lost. But the highest incentive of all is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. God has promoted him to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. 
Whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. See, Paul had no intention of evangelizing until his friends arrived. But when he saw people worshipping all these ridiculous idols instead of Jesus Christ, he couldn't help but speak out. And that's what will bring us beyond our fears of offending others and fears of being rejected or mocked or ridiculed. May the Lord provoke us to care more for his glory than our own comfort. That's what it comes down to, all of us. And be willing to speak out against the idols of our day. They're no different. Whether people worship Allah or think the blind forces of nature created them, we must tell them how ridiculous that is in the light of our own personhoods and the fact of the resurrection. It's not at all easy. So we will only do so if we have the same holy distress that made Paul speak out in Athens. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.